The reading this evening is from Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The rich and the kingdom of God. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at him, them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Got a little tip for you tonight. Um, if you ever think you might propose to somebody, make sure it's a quality proposal, okay? Because uh, you're going to tell the story for the rest of your life. Uh, John, my husband, proposed really well to me, okay? Uh, it involved castles and towers. It involved a Romeo and Juliet reenactment, genuinely. Uh, and it was an absolutely massive surprise. And what was even more lovely, uh, well, no, actually, it wasn't more lovely, but as lovely uh, was that we were actually on holiday uh, with a group of friends at the time, uh, a couple called Jamie and Hazel Dow. Some of you might know them. Hazel used to work here. She was the children's ministry director at some point or other in the dim and distant past. And also uh, some friends, Jeff and Jill. And Jill is one of those people that you just go around to her house, and within about three minutes of being in the house, she's giving you a cup of tea, and she's she knows everything that's happened in your life over the last six months, particularly if it's to do with your love life. She absolutely loves to get to the nitty-gritty of what's going on in your love life. And so she was just waiting for John to propose to me, as we all were waiting for John to propose to me at the time. 
So we were there on holiday at uh, Jamie's dad's castle. He actually lived in a castle at the time. It's a long story, I won't explain now. Uh, Rose Castle. And it was a morning and we were walking around uh, the grounds of this castle. And Jeff and Jill, our friends, had a few children. And uh, we'd got to this beautiful tower called Strickland's Tower, proper Rapunzel Tower. And uh, we'd all gone up the tower and I was at the top of the tower. And then everybody else had come down the tower, but I was still at the top of the tower. I don't know why, but I was. And Jill was there at the bottom of the tower taking pictures of her beautiful children playing in the rose garden of Rose Castle. And she was completely enraptured uh, by her beautiful children and taking photographs of them. So much so that she missed the moment that we'd all been waiting for for about six months. The moment where John sank to his knees in front of all our friends and proposed to me while I was at the top of the tower. Imagine Romeo and Juliet reenactment at this time. That was what was going on. Uh, Don't ask me why. That's another story entirely. She was so distracted. She missed John proposing until... She um, heard everybody cheering and whooping and turned around and literally saw John on his knees and was like, oh, I can't believe I've missed this. I've been waiting for so long. She was so distracted by what she was involved in that she missed the main event when John actually proposed. Anyway, in our reading tonight, Mark's Gospel, there is a tenuous link here, guys. uh, We have this man who is so distracted by his wealth that he misses out on the most amazing and exciting opportunity that he's given. We have in Mark's Gospel a rich man. And this story also appears in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel as well. And in Matthew, he's described as a young man. And in Luke's Gospel in chapter 18, he's described as a ruler with great wealth. Hence, we get uh, that he's called the rich young ruler. So we meet this rich young ruler when he runs to Jesus and kneels, falls at Jesus's feet. Now, this man is not your regular man on the street. The clue sort of in the title, the rich young ruler. He is a rich man, somebody really important. He's got status. He would have been known by other people in the community. And he runs to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. Now, if you were rich and important in those times, you did not run anywhere. It would be a bit like, I was thinking about what it would be like, a bit like the queen coming out of Buckingham Palace to inspect the guard, suddenly seeing somebody in the distance that she hasn't seen for a while, hitching up a skirt, maybe we don't need to think about that, and having a little run across the courtyard to greet her friend who she hasn't seen for some time. It just wouldn't happen. And in Jesus' time, you just didn't run anywhere if you had any money or any status at all. Why would you run? Somebody else lower in society can do the running for you. And yet this man, he would have hitched up his his skirt, his robe, and he runs and he kneels before Jesus. So why does he do this? Well, maybe he's been listening to Jesus as he's talking all over Judea to Pharisees and different families whose houses he's going into. Maybe he's heard something about what Jesus has been talking about and he doesn't want to miss out. He likes to think that he is someone who is faithful to God, and he has a question that needs answering. So he runs to Jesus, and he kneels before Jesus, and he says this, good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's not asking, what do I do to live forever? Or, what do I do to get to heaven? That's how we interpret his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for Jews at this time, they didn't really think about heaven in this uh, uh, eternal life in this way. Uh, they were more bothered about seeing God's kingdom come on earth in what they called the age to come. Uh, they believed, Jews at this time believed, that they were living in the present age and then there was going to be the age to come. Now, the present age uh, was now. And the present age that the Jews were living in was not a good place or a good time to be. Uh, they didn't possess the land that God had for them. Israel was being ruled by Rome. They, they couldn't worship God in the way that they wanted. They did not have freedom over the things that they did. And so they were longing for the age to come. And the age to come where, uh, was a time where the Jews believed uh, that injustice and oppression and sin and suffering would be over. And God would be ruling over the kingdom as he wanted to. So what this man is asking as he runs and kneels before Jesus is, what must I do to be part of this kingdom, this age to come that we believe that God is bringing in? How can I be part of this? He doesn't want to miss out, hence he's running to Jesus and kneeling before him. And Jesus' answer is really interesting. First of all, he sort of hints at his identity as he says, why do you call me good? Nobody is good apart from God alone. And then he goes on to mention some of the commandments. He says, you know the commandments, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder, honor your father and mother. And now our rich young ruler is thinking, ah, oh, this is what Jesus is wanting to hear. He wants to know that I follow the law and I follow the commandments, that I'm a good Jew. This is how I will get my place in the age to come, in the kingdom of God. And so he sort of responds proudly. Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. All these I've kept you can just imagine him, can't you, sort of standing taller, uh, looking proud as he polishes his halo. All these commands, all these laws I've kept since I was a boy. Get me, I'm sorted. I'm in there. I'm all over this age to come. When the Romans are out and God is back in charge, I'm well in there with God. But then Jesus comes back with a classic knockdown. He says this, One thing you lack. There's one thing you lack. Does Jesus know who he's speaking to? This man has everything. He has money, he has blessings, he has status. He's somebody who has been an obedient follower of the law, the rules. And he's told publicly in front of other people, there's one thing that you lack. You're missing something. And this is a massive put-down. Jesus tells this powerful, this rich man, you have something missing, one thing you lack. And everybody pauses. And you can almost imagine at that moment, everybody shuffling slightly awkwardly 
not knowing where to look, looking at their feet a little bit, you know, a bit of tumbleweed goes in front of everybody in the dust. What can this man of all men lack? And Jesus turns and looks him in the eye and says, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Boom. Jesus cuts right to the heart of this man and right to the heart of this man's problem. Your lack is everything you have. Your lack is everything you have. We often think that the barriers in our relationship with Jesus, the problems in our our lives are things that we've got missing, don't we? Uh, Things like, if I had more time, I could do this. If I could have this job. Uh, When I'm married, when I finish school, if this hadn't happened, everything would be fine. I could follow Jesus then with my whole life. But here is Jesus cutting to the core of this man's lack, and it is everything. In fact, he's pointing out it's the very core of this man's being, his identity. You, rich young ruler, your riches are your problem. This is your barrier to me. You see, the Jews believed that wealth was a sign of a blessing from God. Wealth and money and riches were a sign that you were righteous, that you were right with God, and that's why God had blessed you with good things and wealth and status. The very thing uh, that the man thought gave him his identity, that made him right with God, would give him a place in the age to come, was the thing that was actually the barrier to him being able to follow Jesus with his whole life. And so Jesus presents him with this massive challenge. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus doesn't just suggest to him uh, that he just gives a little bit more money away when he goes to the, uh, the synagogue on a Saturday. He doesn't perhaps suggest that he hands out more money to beggars who are lining the road as he walks around his local town. He doesn't suggest that maybe he should start tithing and giving 10% of what he has uh, to the poor. No, Jesus sees right to the heart of this rich man. And he sees that his whole identity His focus, his purpose, his whole spiritual status is dominated by wealth. Money has become this man's idol. The problem is not with his possessions, but the fact that he is possessed by his possessions. The problem is not his possessions per se, but that he is possessed by his possessions. And it's not a good place to be. In Matthew 6, Jesus makes it clear that you can't serve both God and money. You will either love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. And he talks about how the love of, uh, the love of money and the love of God uh, being masters and you can't serve both of them. It's either one or the other. 
And did you notice earlier uh, when the rich man uh, was telling Jesus which of the commands he had already followed, he said, yes, I followed uh, your commands not to murder, not to steal, not to commit adultery, uh, not to, uh, to honor my, my parents. But did you notice which of the commands were missed out? They were the first four commands, all the ones that relate to putting God first in your life. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Those weren't even mentioned. And why is that? It's because the man would never have been able to say to Jesus that he had followed them. Because when it comes to the crunch, Money is his idol, wealth is his God, and possessions are his focus, not God. I wonder if we can relate to that. This man had assumed that being good and obeying moral laws was enough. He hadn't killed anybody, you know, he was an honest man, he hadn't run off with somebody else's wife. He thought, get me, you know, I'm all in there, I've got a big tick by my name. He thought money was enough. Look, I have all this wealth. I have been blessed. God looks at me kindly. But Jesus is basically saying, no, you're distracted. You've missed the point. And Jesus is calling for a radical rethink of what putting God first looks like. Jesus is calling for a radical rethink of what putting God first looks like. And so he tells the man, give it all away. Sell everything. Give it to the poor, because then you'll be free of your idol. That thing that you will always love more than me if you still have it in your life. Jesus' challenge is to get rid of anything that blocks us from fully following and worshipping him. What does the man do? Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because of his wealth. He just couldn't do it. And so he chose to miss out, to hold on to the lie that his wealth, his good life, the stuff he had, his possessions, his outward appearance, his status that he held in society, the way that his friends saw him, that that was enough. He missed out on the greatest treasure, walking his life with Jesus Christ because he believed the lie that his wealth would be enough to bring him happiness and contentment and a place in God's kingdom. He had made money his idol, his wealth, his status, his God. I want us to pause just for a minute and think about that man. What does it make you think about your own life? What questions do you have? Let's just be still for 30 seconds. guess we're all having different thoughts about that man. Maybe you're sat there uh, thinking, you know, I relate to that. I do that in some way. I'm doing it in the mom- at the moment in my own life. 
Maybe you're thinking about uh, that rich young ruler and you're thinking, what an idiot. Why didn't he just give it all up and follow Jesus? Or maybe you're thinking, you know, why did Jesus put such a massive barrier in front of that man? Why did he make it so impossible for him? Why didn't he just ask him to give up 50% of his wealth and then, and then follow him? So let's just think about these things for a moment or two. Firstly, I think that actually what Jesus was doing was making it actually really simple for the man. God or money. God or money. You can't follow Jesus with 50% of yourself. There's a reason we talk about giving our life to Jesus, because it's about giving 100% of who we are and what we have to him. At P's and G's, we talk about being whole life disciples of Jesus, not half life disciples of Jesus or Monday Christians or Wednesday disciples of Jesus. It's about giving our whole self to him. And Jesus could see right into this, this man's heart as he can see into all our hearts and our lives. And he could see that this man's wealth was the most important thing in his life. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus puts it like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The thing that's most important to you, your treasure, that shows where your heart is. So what is that for you? What is your treasure? Where is your heart? Is it making money or keeping money or saving money or planning with your money or, or sorting your debt out? Is it being successful or is it sport or is it your Xbox or your phone or is it your social media profile? Is it your grades at school or university? Is it your friendships or your relationships or your spouse? Is it something in your job and your profession? If any of these things it, or anything else is, is more important than Jesus in your life than it is your idol and my idol, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And things that are our idols grab hold of our hearts. I've had times where things have become idols in my life, where how I feel I look uh, to other people has become my treasure. Where passing exams have been an idol to me, or where relationships have been an idol. And I've had to confess them to God, and I've had to pray them through, and I've had to hand them over to God and put him back as number one in my life. What has grabbed your heart? And so if we're serious about following Jesus, then maybe some of us tonight need to confess to him those things that have become our treasure, that have grabbed our hearts, that have become idols to us. And give that thing and our heart back over to Jesus and make him our number one again. And secondly, God has everything and everything is God's. God has everything and everything is God's. Remember, Jesus told the man that he lacked something. And we all lack, don't we? Even in this Western society that we live in, it, it, we are rich. Even if you are the poorest person that you know, you are rich in the world's terms. But whatever we have, we all lack. And we perhaps need to acknowledge that tonight. We may lack forgiveness. We may lack generosity. 
We may lack faithfulness. We may lack kindness. We may lack humility. We may lack a desire for more of God. We all lack something, and we all need more of God. But the awesome news for all of us who lack is that God lacks nothing. Jesus is more than enough. God lacks nothing. Jesus is more than enough. God has the whole world in his hands. He's called the Jehovah Jireh, the God he provides. He is our all in all. His storehouse is never empty. He is an abundant, generous God of plenty. And if God has everything, and if ultimately everything belongs to him, then we don't need to store up treasure for ourselves like that man did. We can share it with other people. We can be free and be generous and, and bless others with what we, what we have because God is more than enough and has more than enough. A year ago uh, or so, um, John and I were struggling a little bit financially. Uh, we had bills to pay, and we didn't have the money to pay the bills. Always an awkward moment to be in. We knew that uh, when we moved to Edinburgh just under two years ago, uh, that things would be a little bit tighter financially for us, uh, but the reality of that was slightly trickier uh, than we expected. And we realized quite healthily that we'd taken the money that we had had for the previous 10 years for granted. And we had to consider really carefully how we use every penny that we had. But we believed that God had also called us to be people who were generous and who gave and not to hold onto our money tightly, even though we had less money than we actually needed. And so we tightened our belt significantly and we continue to give as we always have done to the church and to different projects, charities and people that we supported. But we got to the point where we needed £6,000. Now, that is a lot of money uh, to pay a bill. And we needed it pretty urgently, um, but we also believed that God would provide. Uh, and so we prayed and we worried a bit as well, and we waited. And about a week before we really, really needed this money, uh, an envelope came through our door up in Benali. It's obviously a place of great provision because uh, an envelope came through our door and it had in it a cheque for £6,000. And the people that sent the cheque didn't know that was the actual money that we needed. And it was a lot of money and we were mightily relieved, let me tell you, uh, about that money. But... Then we did something that was a bit bizarre, I guess, to lots of people. We actually gave away a thousand pounds of the six thousand pounds that we needed. And it wasn't a hard decision for us to do. We just went, oh yeah, well, let's give away a thousand pounds. It was just a bit of a no-brainer to us because over the previous few months, we'd become very aware that everything that we had was God's at the end of the day. This wasn't our money. It was God's money. And we just knew that we had to give a chunk of it away. Now, I'm not telling you this to make me and John look good, because let me tell you, we are rubbish some of the times, uh, some of the time about being generous and giving our money away. But I've always known that what we have is not ours. It belongs to God. And I believe that whatever we have, whether it's money, whether it's intelligence and a brain, 
whether it's a gift or a talent at something or other. Whatever we have, our God is a provider God and gives us those things to bless other people with. And if God lacks nothing, then we don't need to put anything before him because he has everything. And when we do that, we can truly say to God, God, I do surrender my all, everything I have to you, because I know that you have so much more. And when we get our heads around that, then our money or our possessions or our children or our relationships or our talents, everything that we have belongs to God. And so whether we have a little or whether we have a lot, if it's God's, God's in the first place, then we don't need to hold on to those things tightly, but we can hold on to them lightly. And so when we get our head around that as well, then if Jesus asks us to give away 10% or 50% or 100%, like he did with a rich young ruler of what we have, then it's fine because we know that what we have is God's anyway. He has this huge storehouse of treasure. He is the giver who keeps on giving. He knows what we need and he will provide. And then thirdly and lastly, remember, only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. I wonder if you noticed when we were having our Bible reading how twice Jesus' disciples uh, watching this whole interaction that Jesus has with the rich young ruler, uh, seeing this man um, walking away downcast, their reaction twice in verse 24 and verse 26 is that they are amazed. They are amazed. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, why are they so amazed? Well, I think they were amazed because if this man, this rich young ruler who looked the part, who had so much, who had everything in the world's eyes, who was truly blessed, who of course would have a place in the kingdom of God, if he couldn't make the cut, they ask, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And listen to what Jesus' response is. He says this, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. No person, whoever we are, whatever we have, can save themselves. You can't save yourself by obeying commands or following rules. You can't save yourself by being a good person. You can't save yourself by being really clever or having loads of riches. You can't save yourself by being famous or looking like you're successful. You can't save yourself by having a good job or a promotion. It's impossible to save ourselves, to make yourself righteous, right with God. But it is possible for God to save you because God made it possible through Jesus. The whole reason God broke into time in the person of Jesus, the whole reason that Jesus walked on this earth and made radical suggestions like he did to this rich young ruler and taught radical living, the whole reason that Jesus died an agonizing death on that cross, the whole reason Jesus had to shout there, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The whole reason Jesus died and was put in a grave and then broke through that grave again. The whole reason that Jesus didn't stay dead. The whole reason was because we cannot, but God can. We cannot, but God can. God has to be the one who saved us. And nothing is impossible for God. And so he, in the person of Jesus, 
fully human, fully God, made the impossible possible and saved you and I through the power of the cross. If we believe that Jesus has done something so radical like that for us, then this demands a radical response from us. And that's what Jesus is speaking about here. He is like, look, here I am to this rich young ruler. What is it in our lives that's stopping us from fully following him with our whole lives? Get rid of it, he's saying. Trust me, I will provide for you. You can't do it, but I can. I've given you everything. I've given you my life, my everything, my all. Are you ready? Am I ready to fully surrender ourselves to him? To fully surrender those things that we really love? Are we ready to put Jesus first, to make him our treasure and to give him our hearts?